You, you know what's cool? All of us have kind of picked a guy out of the scriptures that were empowered by the Holy Spirit. And, and, and Andy's uh, study on Samuel. And, and I read on a little bit further in chapter 3. And I, I love that last verse of chapter 3. It says this. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. God's revelation came as Samuel was in the word of God. And, and isn't that our prayer this, this day, guys? We're going to be in the word of God all day. But that God would reveal himself in a greater way to each of us as men. And so uh, I, Pastor Mike Nassie is going to come and open the scriptures again with us. Would you give him a, a warm welcome? All right. Good morning. morning. How are you, fellas? Man, you can tell which guys are from my church. They know the drill, man. Like, good morning, morning. All right. All right. So uh, first and foremost, uh, what I would like to say before we get started is um, happy birthday to my pastor. Happy birthday, Pastor Ray. It is Pastor Ray's birthday today. He's 29 again. All right. Well, fellas, once you turn to Acts uh, chapter 6, and uh, as you do so, um, there were some things that Andy said that to me were just, it was a good word uh, for me. One of those things being that there is a divine purpose for all of us being in this world at this time. And those times when we have those first glances, and I'll be honest, for me, that first glance, that sort of looking to see, do I have all that I need, and thinking, man, why did they call up the middle school guy in a varsity conference? And the Lord just said, hey, dude, you have my spirit. You have my calling. You have my empowering. You have my equipping. You have my word. Go forward. And I want to encourage you guys with that because sometimes we can feel like, you know, the middle school guy or the junior varsity guy in a realm of varsity players, and it's not like that. Every single one of us that has received Jesus, we have his Holy Spirit within us, and that puts us in a league of our own, man, a league with our Savior. Anyway, all of that to say, let's pray. Lord, we thank you again this morning for being able to come together, for being in your presence, for being your men, for being alongside one another, and God, for the work that you've already done in our hearts in the time of fellowship, the work that you've done in our hearts in the time of worship, the work that you've done in our hearts uh, through the first message, and Lord, the work that you're gonna do in our hearts even right now through this study. We pray, God, that right now, that this time, we would be fully, completely surrendered to you, and Lord, we recognize that we didn't come to sing songs or to hear guys speak. We came to meet with you, to hear from you, and to be changed by you. So Lord, would you please do that very thing in our midst? And Lord, I would humbly ask God that you would allow me to speak words that glorify you and edify my brothers this morning. We love you, God. We're so grateful to be here. We're so grateful for your salvation. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. All right. So we all had the opportunity to pick a guy that was empowered by the Holy Spirit, and immediately the first guy that came to mind was Stephen, or Stefan, depending on how you like to pronounce it. And it's an interesting thing, because typically if you say Stephen, everybody will answer with one thing. Oh, he's a martyr. But there's way more to Stephen's life than the fact that he was the first martyr. And even as Andy was talking and drawing us to that place of realizing that, hey, listen, we are living in days that are drastically different than what they once were. As I look at the life of Stephen, as I look at the life of him in this first century church, I realize that he is a prime example of what we as men need to look like, what we as men, an example example for us to follow. I'll give you a little bit of a background. It's over in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the baptism of the Holy Spirit so that they would have power to be his witnesses. Where? Well, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And then after that, he ascended in a cloud to heaven. And then over in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, the promise that Jesus gave of the baptism of the Holy Spirit becomes a reality as 120 people are in an upper room and the Holy Spirit comes and falls upon them. Believers, uh, non-believers in Christ from all over were confused as they heard the disciples speaking the wonderful works of God in their own native languages. So Peter is then filled with the Holy Spirit, stands up, preaches the first evangelist, evangelistic message of the church. And what I mean by of the church is before the falling of the Holy Spirit, you merely had 120 people that believed in Jesus. Once the Holy Spirit fell upon those 120 believers, he breathed life into this thing that's called the church that you and I are a part of. And as that happens, Peter, filled with the Spirit, preaches the first evangelistic message of this church age, if you will, and 3,000 souls were added to the church. The church then begins to meet house to house, to study, to fellowship, to partake of communion, to pray together, to provide for one another, and the Lord continued to add to the church daily those who were being saved. And then in Acts 3, Peter and John, they're on their way to prayer at the temple, and as they're going through the gate, beautiful, a beggar who had been there all of his days, every day he gets put out there to beg alms, he asks for alms all the time, Peter gets his attention and says, hey man, look at me, and the guy looks at him, and Peter utters those famous words, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have to you I give to you, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, and the man was healed, and he walked, and he leaped, and he praised God in the temple with them and became the first recorded walking testimony of the power of Christ through this new church to heal. And then this provides another preaching opportunity for Peter, who is again filled with the Holy Spirit and preaches salvation in Jesus Christ alone for the saving of the soul. And then we get to Acts 4. Peter and John, they're arrested for teaching the people and preaching the resurrection from the dead. They go before the Sanhedrin for questioning. Peter is once again filled with the Holy Spirit and gives a defense of the gospel. The Sanhedrin forbids them of preaching Jesus, and they utter another famous statement, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Peter and John are threatened, set free, and then they go to their companions, the other disciples, and they pray that they might be bold in proclaiming the truth about Jesus. And the end of the prayer results like this. 
Now, Lord, look on their threats. Grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, well, you know what happened. The place where they were shook. The place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Then we get to chapter five. And you say, well, I thought we were talking about Stephen. Well, we are, but if you don't understand sort of the quick overview of what happens in chapters one through four, then you don't understand the necessity for what happens in chapter five. We get to chapter five, and we see that in chapter five, God shows that he's not gonna tolerate any hypocrisy in this new thing called the church. Ananias and Sapphira sold a possession, lied about the prophet. They take a lesser amount than they received to the apostles, lied about the true price, and both die as Peter declares to them that they haven't lied to men, but rather to the Holy Spirit. And at this point, the Bible declares that through the apostles' hands, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord. And it's recorded here that God was doing such amazing things. Listen to this because I want you to, to, to just see the, the beauty of this. It's recorded in chapter 5 that God was doing such amazing things that non-believers didn't even want to hang out with the apostles because they were terrified of this God that they represented. Talk about a powerful church, right? So powerful that non-believers are like, stay away from those dudes because if you start lying around those guys, you'll just drop dead, bro. Like those guys, they lay hands on people and they're healed and demons are cast out. Like it is a crazy thing. It says that they brought out the sick in their bed so that even as Peter would walk down the street, man, if his shadow would pass upon him, they would be healed. That many were healed uh, of demonic uh, torments uh, from unclean spirits. The apostles were again arrested. An angel opened the prison door. They go right into the temple and they teach the people. They're rearrested. They're tried in the temple court. They're beaten and they're set free. And that chapter ends with this statement. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Before we see Stephen even enter in chapter 6, we see a church that is alive. We see a church that is genuine. We see a church that is powerful because they are empowered with the Holy Spirit. We see a church that so literally believes in Jesus that they lay it all on the line regardless of the circumstances around them. Isn't that what every single one of us are called to be as men in the church today still? Are we willing to really believe to the point that we believe without a shadow of a doubt that we would lay everything, including our lives, on the line for the gospel that we believe saved us? We'll enter in chapter 6. We see a little biblical math. In Acts 2, God adds to the church. In Acts 5, God subtracts, a blessed subtraction, no doubt, Ananias and Sapphira, uh, from the church. And then... God multiplies the church. And as God multiplies the church, the opportunity for hurt feelings and division arise. The church is now estimated by some to be around 20 to 25,000 people 
And that may be being a conservative number. And up until this point, it appears for the first five chapters of Acts that it's really the apostles that are the ones that are at work. They're the ones really serving the needs of the church and of the community that's outside of the church. At least they're the only ones that are recorded doing so. But this church is again, it's alive, it's thriving in the midst of threats and of persecutions. It is bold and it is genuine. And with all of that, it is growing exponentially. And where there is growth, there is a need for more servants to minister to the needs of the growing number. You see, we often talk about the first century church with with a longing for the power and the genuineness of those days to be upon us again. In the 15 years that I have walked with the Lord, I don't know how many times either I have said it or I have heard it in a conversation of people longing for the power and the genuineness of the church of the book of Acts. However, we don't really want the same circumstances that surrounded the first century church to be our circumstances because we want the power and we want the genuineness, but we don't want all the hassle of that. We beg for power, but from the comfort of our temperature-controlled microwave oven, turbocharged sports car, lazy boy chair, satellite TV, water heater, indoor plumbing, electricity, internet-dependent, cell phone-needing, slick-cloth-wearing environment, and yet we expect to receive all that we saw in the book of Acts as far as power and genuineness in the church. I won't go so far as to say that God will not or cannot move powerfully in our current environment, but I will say that we don't leave much room for the supernatural involvement of God typically in our day-to-day lives. Today, worldwide, as well as within the American culture, things have shifted radically against the favor of Christianity. On one extreme, we have a liberal environment that says all of our biblical beliefs are full of hatred or simple, simply archaic and unintelligent. And on the other extreme, we have Islam on the rise, which will settle for nothing less than a worldwide domination, even over those who are already against our biblical morals. Men, we have spent the last few years collectively begging God for the church to look the way it did in the first century, and it appears that God has allowed in some parts of the world more than others so far those very circumstances, the circumstances that strip us all of our creature comforts to a dependency completely and solely upon him. And I believe Stephen is the example that we can look to for how to carry out the rest of our lives whether we get to stay in this uh, environment of which we get to keep all the creature comforts or in which they're all stripped away from us. Look at Acts chapter 6. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, again a multiplication of the church, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Well, you guys know this. Essentially, the Hellenists were those that were more Greek-cultured, okay? We would say, with all due respect to everybody, the Hellenists would be, you know, the, the skinny jean-wearing guys, the guys wearing jeggings and such, and the, Helen- and the Hebrews would be the more rough-and-tumble sort of like, you know, like, we're legit Hebrews, and you guys speak Greek, and you like rock and roll, okay? So that's kind of like, that's it, okay? It's not like, 
there's this big branch of people. It's just a cultural thing. So the complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. There's now a big church meeting. The apostles get together and they say, okay, we need to do something. The apostles wisely realize both the role that they are to play in the church and the need to raise up others to serve the growing needs. In this case, the need to serve the Hellenistic widows. As there is work to do, there is a need for people to do the work, and that's where they find themselves. But what has always struck me about this is the qualifications required for the work. What essentially is the complaint? Well, the Hellenistic Jewish widows are not getting the daily distribution. Now, there's a lot to be said about what the daily distribution is. Is it merely that it is the, you know, taking of things and giving it to them like money? Is it the bringing to them the food or whatnot? But, but essentially, we could look at it as the role that these seven men were to do was essentially to be waiters and busboys, to do the, 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 the everyday tasks that these widows could not do. The men who were to be chosen to basically be waiters, busboys, delivery drivers, trash taker-outers, and any other practical needs that were included in the daily distribution to these widows were, were that they were to be men of good reputation who were full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. You see, I've always found it absolutely intriguing that their qualifications far exceed what is expected in many churches today for ministries that we might consider to be of some higher priority than being a waiter or a busboy. The reason those qualities were necessary was because only a Christian who's filled with the Holy Spirit, who's indwelt with the Holy Spirit, can carry out those duties or any of the other duties with the love of Christ and the empowerment to do so, so that the Father is glorified in heaven. The men with these qualifications were needed to free up the apostles so that the apostles could fulfill their role in Jesus' church. What I love about the seven that are chosen, these guys were chosen specifically because the apostles were onto something. Our role is to minister in prayer and in the word. It's not to say that the apostles said, look, man, these Hellenistic widows, they're just driving me nuts. Could somebody deal with them? That's not it. And it's not as if they said, you know what? This is below me. I'm an apostle after all. That wasn't it either. They said, our role is this. And there are those that can fulfill that role. We need to figure out who they are. So look at what happens over in verse five. And the same pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen or Stephen, however you like to say it, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Don't you love that all these things are directed about Stephen here, about Stephen? He's a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Oh, and by the way, and Phyllis, Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parninians and, and Nic uh, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. 
So important were the qualifications that after the men were chosen, the apostles prayed, and I would guess to make sure that they were approved by God, and then laid hands on them to seal the deal. They didn't lay hands on them and then pray everything would work. They went to the Lord and they said, are these the seven guys? Okay, great. And then they laid hands on them and sent them out. Now we're dealing specifically with Stephen here. But look at his unique qualities among the seven. As we begin looking specifically at Stephen, may I make one very important observation that I see about him? He was obviously on somebody's radar and if he was on somebody's radar to be one of the seven, it was because he was present and available. He was present and available. Can I say to you that Stefan was present and available in a time when there was no such thing as rock star status in the church? What Stephen saw was that if you're going to be ready and available, you're going to suffer persecution. You're going to lay it all on the line. There is no backing down. There is no going back. There is no retreat. There is only moving forward with the gospel message attached to your heart, believing in nothing else but Jesus and willing to do any and all things that bring him glory. See, a lot of times I hear pastors preach about this and they talk about deacons and deacons and deacons and they, they want to elevate even deacons up to almost like, let me talk you into being a deacon kind of thing. Nobody was being talked into any roles in the church. If anything, they had every reason to say, I don't want a position in this thing called the church. It's too hard. But we see that these guys, they were available. Guys, can I be so bold as to say that my heart in serving here, I, I, I got to serve here for 10 years, and it was, it was a huge privilege, and it was hard. There were times when it, like, I would leave Pastor Ray's office or other people's offices just like with my tail between my legs, like, oh, man, it's over, you know? Like, that's, I, don't, I mean, I know I'm still saved, but like, everybody hates me, and I'm really messed up, and, you know, and all this stuff. But I got to serve here for 10 years, but in 10 years of serving here, I, I, I don't mean to, to boast. I, I mean this humbly, but with all boldness, can I say that, that my heart was always to be available and to be as present as often as possible? Can I ask you guys, you men of the church, do you desire to be present and available for the work of the church, for the work of ministry? I mean, you know, Andy covered some of the things that we can make excuses for, but do you have a desire, even when it's so unfitting that you know your life would be on the line? You want to be there to be part of the work. Can I say that there were times over the course of 10 years when I would hear somebody imply that the pastors had it easy because they had their office and a computer and all this stuff, not realizing that there's nothing easy about the role that everybody's called to. Your role is no easier than my role and vice versa, nor is one more important than the other. Stephen was a dude along with six other men who said, I'm here, I'm available, send me. Whatever you need. The widows need some trash taken out, I'll do it. They need some food, I'll do it, and not only that, I'll bust the table afterwards. I'll even do the dishes and put them away for them. The heart of a servant. I love that we see that here in the heart of Stephen. Is your heart so full of joy that you get the opportunity to serve 
Or has your heart become bitter and now you have to do your ministry? Because I think as we look at Stephen's life, we see a guy who says, I'm gonna glorify God no matter what. I'll do whatever and I will gladly start by being a busboy if that's what is needed of me during this time. Look what happens in verse seven. As a result of these seven guys stepping up and doing what they were called to do, even what they were asked to do, because the truth is, there's times when we're asked to do things that we don't particularly care for. It doesn't match our schedule or you know, our cool factor or whatever it is. But look at what happens in verse seven. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and bonus, a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. These dudes that said, I'll be a busboy, were so impactful in that, that the church multiplied in Jerusalem to the point that even religious, hypocritic Pharisees and such were like, you know what, there is something about this Jesus thing that is legit and real. I want that. Are we taking the gospel message with us, with our walk and our talk and our attitudes wherever we go? Because I believe that these seven guys stepping up is a direct result here. Verse seven is a direct result of them stepping up because they freed up the apostles to do what they were called to do while they did what they were called to do. And everybody working in unity accomplished the ultimate goal, which was Jesus was preached, people were saved, God was glorified. Amen? Well, look at what happens here. Verse eight. And Stephen full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Can I just go back to Andy's point there for a minute? Uh, we're all here for a divinely, uh, divinely inspired reason right at this time. Whatever baggage we have doesn't matter. Our past doesn't matter. And even the whole idea of, well, I gotta start somewhere is the wrong attitude. Stephen said, I'll be a busboy. And then two verses later, what do we see about Stephen's life? The dude is so surrendered to all of Jesus, all of the Father and all of the Holy Spirit. And he says, God, I am completely yours. And suddenly the busboy is the guy notified, uh, noted as being the man who is full of faith and power who did great wonders and signs among the people. That's pretty rad. It's another unique quality of Stephan over what seems to be the other six. The word power here that's used is that same word power that was used in Acts 1-8 by Jesus when he told the apostles to go to Jerusalem and to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit so that they would have power to be his witnesses. We see Stephan really doing this, living it out. The guy who was available to serve, willing to serve, faithful in the task he was given, is now far exceeding many of our own expectations of him. He was a man who was faithful in the little things, a man who didn't despise the days of small beginnings because he, uh, rather that, that what he, he realized that what he was doing at any given moment for Jesus was not a little thing, but was, in point, was important and an, and an anointed work by God. Do you realize that even in what you might consider to be the smallest of tasks, it is of greatest importance and requires the exact same anointing as any other thing you see go on in the church. 
Should you be out in the parking lot and you see the weeds uh, start to come up in the parking lot of your particular church? It is important and you are anointed by God to pull the weeds. Should you be called upon to make a home visit so that you can minister to the needs of some family? It is important and you are anointed by God in the home visit. Should you be called upon as the guy who feels like the junior varsity dude to come up and speak to a group of men? It is important and you are anointed by God for the work. Should you be called, as we'll see in a minute, to die for your faith? It is important and you are anointed by God for that work too. Can we be guys that are so fully satisfied with Jesus that we're okay pulling weeds, being a busboy, being a waiter, cleaning the toilets, and any other thing before the thing that we put up as our personal label of, 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 of our big peak of ministry? That's what we see out of these seven guys. Well, look at what happens. We, we don't have much time. We'll sort of breeze through this. So we see Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose, from, uh, then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. There's a, there's a fight that happens, a dispute, an argument. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. May I suggests that because he was obedient regardless of circumstance, because he was obedient in the difficult stuff, that when it came time to be a defender of the faith, he could rest fully in what Jesus said and said, you know what, don't even like, don't even like map out what your response is going to be. Just listen to me and my Holy Spirit will speak through you. Because here we have this dispute that comes up. These guys don't like that Stephen is saying, hey, Jesus is enough and that's all you need. And so there's this dispute and they cannot even resist the words that Stephen speaks. Why? Because he's empowered with the Holy Spirit to have this conversation with these guys. And so they're not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induce men to say, uh, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Hey, by the way, if you're Stephen right now, you're probably going like, right on, man. That's what they did to Jesus. I'm in good company. They're, they're telling lies about me so that they can get me in trouble. And they're telling the same lies. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. And they also set up false witnesses and said, this man does not seek to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him. They're all angry, by the way. Don't, don't misinterpret this. Everybody's angry at Stephen. They want Stephen dead. They just heard like the lie of the century, the very thing Jesus was accused of. This demands the death sentence. They're all looking at Stephen. And while the circumstances are bad, and while the accusations are flying, and while he stands in the face of the worst adversity he's ever seen, what does it say about him? His, they saw his face as the face of an angel. Dude, really? They want to kill this guy, and he's sitting there like this. And he's just like beaming. It's like, keep it coming, fellas. Just keep it coming, because the more you come at me, the more the love of God just overwhelms my soul. 
And these guys are going for it. Well, we don't even have time to go into chapter 7. But, but essentially, as you look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 50, Stephen gives the longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts. His message is really an expositional teaching through the Old Testament that answers all the false accusations against him while indicting the religious rulers of the Jews of the very same thing that it, they had hired people to lie to Stephen about. And then you get down, as you turn all the way down there to verse 51, and look at what happens here in verse 51. After Stephen preaches this super long, like crazy cool expositional message, which I encourage you guys, you guys like go home, read through that, and then like flip back and forth. And you know, like you could spend a week just looking at the sermon that he preaches, okay? It's that good, it's that meaty, okay? But we don't have time for that. So we go down to verse 51, and look at this. This is how Stephen ends his message. I love the ending of this message because if you're Stephen and you know everybody wants to kill you and everybody in the room is against you and all the accusations are flying towards you, you may want to be the guy at this point that makes nice. You might want to be the guy that's like, oh, well, hey, you know, it's just a misunderstanding and I'm real sorry about all the misunderstanding and I won't say it again and you guys look amazing. But Stephen doesn't do that. Do you see the way that Stephen ends his message? Stephen ends his message by saying this, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Dang. What a climax to the end of this crazy message. His climactic uh, review of these Pharisees, if you will, of the, of the religious leaders is, you guys resist and have blasphemed the Holy Spirit in your utter rejection of Jesus, even though all the people I preached about from verse 1 to verse 50 all spoke to the Messiah coming. For a further reference on that, for those of you that are like crazy Bible scholars, reference the whole book of Hebrews. Jesus greater than the angels. Jesus greater than the prophets. Jesus greater than Moses, greater than Joshua, greater than anyone or anything. Jesus, the ultimate great high priest who offered himself a sacrifice and ushered in is the mediator of a new covenant that comes in his blood. You religious Jews have missed all of this because you are stiff-necked and you refuse the Holy Spirit. How do you like that for a guy who started out as a busboy? Seriously. You see, the problem is, is that we can get so like inundated with the whole like cool factor of church and forget that none of us are cool at all, man. It's all for the glory of God. This is all for Jesus because he paid for us with his blood. Are you as excited to pull weeds as to be a martyr? Or are you as excited to pull weeds or to be a martyr or to be on the platform somewhere as a speaker or playing an instrument or, or whatever it is? 
Because Stefan didn't start out and wake up one day and go, you know what, I think today I'm gonna get myself in trouble till I'm martyred so I can go in the history books and I'll look awesome. That wasn't the case. Look at what happens here as we, as we kind of close out our time. Look at verse 54. When they heard these things, when they heard the message, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Dude, can you imagine what this looked like? We look at, at what it looks like in, in, in what hell's gonna look like, okay? And there's like weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is literally what the people are doing. They're so enraged that Stephen would have the audacity to preach Jesus and to do it boldly and to do it saying, I believe this with my whole life and you guys are stiff-necked people who rejected the Holy Spirit and you not only missed Messiah, you murdered Messiah and their response is this. That's how ugly sin is. That's how wicked and depraved a rejection of Jesus is. They gnashed their teeth at him because they were cut to the heart. But on the contrary, he being full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. Whoa. First they gnashed their teeth at him. And when he gives them one last opportunity and goes, look, there's the Son of Man. They are so determined not to receive the truth that they go, no! And they cover their ears and pick up stones to throw at him. Watch this. This is crazy. They cried with a loud voice, stopped their ears, ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down, cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Anybody notice an odd posture of Jesus in this? Notice that it says Jesus is standing. Where we see Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. You know why? Because Jesus sitting displays that his work is finished and he has ceased from his work as a great high priest and now sits down. But here Jesus stands up to receive his servant, Stephen. I don't know about you, but however the Lord decides to take me, I would like to be glorifying him to the point that I'm deserving of a warm welcome. See, one of the things that this church is known for, whenever we have a guest speaker or, or whatever, Pastor Ray would always say, would you give a warm Calvary Chapel welcome to whoever? And that's great, and you know, like, if I, if I come back here and you guys clap and like, a warm Calvary Chapel welcome. With all love and with no disrespect, your applause is meaningless if Jesus himself isn't well pleased to receive me. We see Jesus standing up 
we know that there's no need for him to stand up. His work is completed. And I can only think that as he's standing to personally receive Stephen into his glorious kingdom, that is what Jesus, you know, that, 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 that Stephen must have recounted the words of Jesus. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not, I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. I believe Stephen got to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over few things. I will make you a ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Now, I have like 15 seconds and a couple of other thoughts, so I'm going to give them to you quickly, okay? So fasten your seatbelts because we got to do this quick. One, not only did Stephen die well, but he died with forgiveness upon his lips, just as Jesus did. Stephen really exemplifies for us a servant leader to the point of death, regardless of whether we live in air-conditioned comfort or whether we live as our brothers and sisters who are literally being persecuted and martyred daily in the Middle East. He exemplifies for us what that should look like. You might take note that in chapter 8, it is because of Stephen that the gospel will go from being preached to the Jews to also being preached to the Sumerians. You would note that in chapter 11, specifically verses 19 through 26, that because of Stephen or because of Stephen, the gospel would now be taken to the Gentiles. You could note that in chapter 22 that Paul never forgot the impact that Stephen had in his life because Paul was the guy at the time called Saul of Tarsus who guarded the clothing, it says, in the very next chapter of, our, of, of Acts that we don't have time to go into. He guarded the clothing of the people as they stoned Stephen to death. And Paul never forgot that to the point that Paul specifically says that as he was arrested in the temple and a mob ensued, Paul used the opportunity to preach Jesus. And in his preaching of Jesus, this is the following excerpt of that message. Acts 22, verse 17. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance. And I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And he said for me, depart for I'll send you far from here for the Gentiles. You see, Stephen had a lasting impact even in death. We, we, we are short on time, and so let me close with a list of things about Stephen that I think are important for our lives, for us to look at and to follow after. These are things noted specifically in the text about him. Stephen was a man of good reputation, he was a man full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. He was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. He was a man who was available. He was a man who was present. He was a man who was chosen by God. He was a man who had hands laid on him by the apostles. He was a man who did what, was, what he was called upon to do. 
He was a man full of faith and power. He was a man who did great wonders and signs among the people. He was a man who spoke with wisdom from the Holy Spirit when a dispute erupted. He was a man who in the midst of lying accusations did not lose his temper, but instead shined with the light and love of Jesus. He was a man who preached and taught about Jesus boldly in the presence of the religious authorities, including the high priest. He was a powerful expositor of the word. He was a man who knew the word of God. He was a man who had a clear understanding of his Bible and of his Savior Jesus. He was a man who cut the people to the heart with the message he delivered. He was a man who when the people responded with violence, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and shared that with those who were about to kill him. He was a man who committed his spirit to Jesus, his Lord and Savior. He was a man who prayed for forgiveness of his murderers. He was a man who was received by Jesus. He was a man who died a great death. He was a man who goes down in history as the first Christian martyr. He was a man who in death impacted the church to fulfill their role to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And most notably, he impacts the life of a man that God would use in incredible ways throughout the world who penned the majority of the New Testament, a man named Paul the Apostle. And thus, he was a man with a long lasting legacy. This dude, this dude is the kind of man that I want to be. And I pray that he's the kind of man that we want to be and the kind of men that we are when we drive away from this church today. Amen? Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the many messages that you will bring to our hearts and to our ears today. Lord, help us to take your word, store it away in our hearts, and walk it out with our lives as we surrender to you totally and completely. God, continue to move in our midst. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. And God, we desire more of you and less of us. In Jesus' name, amen.